G. Campbell Morgan was one of 150 young men who sought entrance into the Wesleyan ministry in 1888. It's been a few years ago, right? So he passed all of his doctrinal examinations and kind of showed that he knew that. But there was a final trial sermon that came after that. And it was a super intimidating thing in which he went into this auditorium that would hold a thousand people. And there are three people that are going to judge him that are sitting there. Uh, and there's 75 other onlookers, but could you imagine, I mean, less than a tenth of this place filled and the, this huge auditorium, the intimidation that he must have felt as a new and budding pastor. When he stepped into the pulpit to this mostly empty and imposing auditorium, his sermon fell flat, his energy was down, and he did not impress this small audience of three judges at the time. Two weeks later, uh, Morgan's name appeared on a list of 105 out of those 150 that were rejected for the ministry. Jill Morgan, his daughter-in-law, wrote a book called A Man of the Word about her father-in-law. And he, she, she actually tells us here that he wired, again, this is a while ago, he wired to his father one word, and that word was rejected. And he sat down to write into his diary that she was able to read later after he had passed away, very dark everything seems, still he knoweth best. Quickly came the reply, rejected on earth, accepted in heaven, dad. Today we're going to see a woman who was rejected by the religious leaders of her day as well. Uh, she was a woman who was counted as nothing by them, yet Christ does not reject her. Her love for Christ overshadows all of those who were in the room at the time, and her story, her account is told even today as we read it in the Word of God. Uh, in this account today, we also see one who was rejected on earth, but accepted in heaven. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we go through your Word today, as we study the pages of your Scripture, open up our hearts and minds, as Brother Jim has already alluded to in his prayer, that that we understand the words of your scripture. And, and more than just a head knowledge, a head understanding, I, I pray that it goes from our head, that it goes into our hearts, that it changes who we are. Uh, your, your word says that your word does not return void, uh, that, it, that it penetrates into the depths of the soul. Lord God, I pray that that happens today, not because I'm the best pastor or preacher, uh, not because of anything but, but your glory and how great that you are, that your name and your renown may be, may be known, and that your people who are here may be changed and sanctified by your word. May we become more and more like your son. And if anyone does not know you as their Lord and Savior, God, I pray that today is that day of salvation. We love you so much, Lord. We thank you that you are willing to accept the unacceptable according to our world. We love you, Lord. Amen. So today we're going to see three ways that those who are forgiven and accepted by Christ respond by showing their love to Him. Our first point is those who have been forgiven and accepted by Christ should show their love radically. They should show their love radically. I'm going to read our first verse here, uh, verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. This first verse in this account is a little bit interesting. So, so who's he going to go eat with? 
A fair, okay, I still got everybody. That's good. We're still here. So a Pharisee, isn't that kind of weird? Like, have the Pharisees been friends of Jesus so far? No, I mean, they've been his biggest critics, his biggest enemies. And yet we see the grace of Jesus Christ, that he is going to go to a man's house that doesn't like him. I mean, his whole people, like all, all the Pharisees, all they've done is try to get Jesus in trouble, try to figure out how to get him arrested. We're going to see it continue to escalate even throughout this book of Luke. And Luke records actually three such instances that Jesus reclines at table with a, with a Pharisee or a group of Pharisees. We see it also in chapter 11, verse 37, and chapter 14, verse 1. So we must not miss his great mercy and grace even to his enemies. And my friends, we were enemies of God as well, and we'll talk about that later. But yet he shows us his great mercy by offering salvation to us even while we were yet his enemies, God-haters living opposed to his will. Moving forward, we start to see this scene unfold. Let's read verses 37 and 38. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. There is a lot in these two verses. So we're introduced to this woman who was known as a, quote, sinner. Most commentators, as they look at this and they see uh, Simon the Pharisee's reaction to what she does, uh, understands that she's probably a prostitute. Uh, that's probably what we're looking at here. Uh, we're not given a name for this woman. A lot of commentators have tried to link her to another woman in the Bible. I think that's going beyond the scripture. We should be okay to know that she is unnamed, and we will know her name in heaven, because that's where she's going to be, as you're going to see throughout this account. But we're told that, that Jesus is reclining at table with a Pharisee and obviously probably other religious leaders, multiple people there in this home. And we start to think, well, how did this sinner, this woman, come in to this Pharisee's courtyard? Like, where, how did that even happen? Well, this is actually a common custom back then. When they had religious leaders that would gather for a meal, they would actually let bystanders come and go. That was a normal cultural thing. So that wasn't weird that she came into this. But what, what was weird is what she did when she did come in. Um, and, and we also have to look at how, how Jesus would have been sitting at that time. Uh, you know, he, he would have been sitting at the table, his feet out. Uh, for those of you who have a hard time getting off the floor, you can amen our chairs that we have today when you go to sit to dine. Could you imagine trying to get up after eating a big meal? You'd have to roll a couple of times maybe to get, to get, to get back up there. I know at least me, that's probably where I'd be. Um, and, and this woman known as a sinner, she comes with this, this flask of alabaster ointment. Uh, and, and she came probably to anoint the head of Jesus. Uh, but she's overcome by emotion when she sees her Savior. Uh, she's just overcome. And, and, and so she breaks into tears. The tears start to fall upon his feet. And then she uses her hair to clean, to wipe that off. And then she anoints his feet. And then she repeatedly kisses his feet, and, and this becomes a little awkward for us today, and it's awkward for them there for even different reasons. But there's a lot that has just happened, so let's just kind of go through these one by one. So number one, she's overwhelmed by Christ's goodness, kindness, acceptance, and forgiveness. So her love for Christ and her appreciation for Christ brings her to tears. She, she, she's so overwhelmed by emotion at seeing her Savior that she just starts to to, to cry, uh, and, and so much that it wets his feet enough to where she feels like, okay, I'm going to wipe this off with my hair. She also is, uh, you know, 
she, she lets her hair down in order to wipe off his feet, which in that time in Jewish culture, that was scandalous and was a means for divorce. Now, obviously, if she was a prostitute, we don't know if she was married or not, um, but, but that was a, a big deal, a, a very unashamed thing, which brings us into our next point. She unashamedly worships Christ. So she falls to her face in the presence of Jesus. This reminds me of King David. If we look back in the book of 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 14, it says, And David danced before the Lord with all his might, and David was, in, was wearing a linen ephod. So he danced before the Lord in his undergarment that would go under their clothes, unashamedly worshiping God for how great that God was. And here is this sinful woman in humility, worshiping the Lord at his feet. And number three, she washes the feet of Christ. And we've talked about foot washing, how this was a menial task that only slaves did for the most part, servants did. And here she is washing his feet. And not only washing his feet, number four, she offers her best to Christ. Uh, we cannot miss this alabaster flask of ointment. We don't really understand much about that today. But back in those days, these were usually around six months to a year's worth of wages. This was a very expensive thing that she places and anoints Jesus' feet with. How amazing is it? She brings her best to Jesus because she values him as such. Why does she have this amazingly overcome with emotion response to Jesus? We have to ask ourselves that question. Like, what, what is causing this? And we don't know. Uh, we, we, it's clear that she has experienced the saving work of Jesus Christ. Uh, it's clear that she has heard him preach at some point, that she has come to salvation at some point, and here she comes to offer her offering to her Savior. She knows who Jesus is. Uh, Jesus has already accepted her. It's not just now. He already has before, and we see that she comes to worship her Savior. She came to anoint his head, and being overcome with how wonderful that he is, she breaks down at his feet. Her response to Christ's saving work in her life led to this spontaneous worship and adoration of her Savior. Brothers and sisters, do you ever become so overwhelmed at the thought of Christ that it brings you to your face? Uh, do, do you ever get to that point where you are just so overwhelmed by the glory and majesty of God as you read his word, as you pray to him, as you think of his attributes? Do you ever get to that point where it just you're overwhelmed by emotion, by, his, by a sense of his presence and a wonder at how great that he is. I, I realize that, you know, we teach against experientialism, meaning that we do everything for feelings. That's, you know, that's a dangerous, dangerous side note. Um, we, we, we don't want to be a people that is not thinking about the Lord, that, that's not about theology, it's not about that. But we are called to worship in spirit and in truth, both spirit and truth. Sadly, a lot of churches pick one or the other. We have some churches that are quote-unquote spirit-filled where truth is not abounding, uh, where theology goes off the rails. But sadly, we have other churches that truth, there's big heads everywhere, but there's small hearts. And, and, and we lack the spirit of worship as well. And one thing I pray for us is that we are a people that worships God in spirit and in truth. And if you can think about what God has done for you on that cross, and you can think about the nails entering his wrists, and a crown of thorns placed upon his head, and a 40 minus 1 lashings, and, and when you, if you can think about the suffering he took with taking the wrath of God and have no emotion at all, you need to check yourself. 
I know some of us are more emotional than others, but we should feel that, that, that love and adoration for our Savior in our spirit, not in our emotion, but in our spirit. We should worship God in spirit and in truth. Actually, we see the Apostle Paul teach on this in Romans 8, 26 through 27. He says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what we are, we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But it, but the Spirit Himself intercedes with us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches our hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So Paul in this chapter of Romans has just talked about the blessed hope of salvation. Uh, the, the, the blessed hope of eternal life through salvation. Yes, we have salvation, those who are in Christ now, but we look forward to the day where everything's made right, where Jesus comes and, and removes his church. And we can become uh, you know, so overwhelmed, and, and frankly, we should eventually at times become so overwhelmed that we really don't even know what to say. I don't know if you've ever gotten to the point where you're praying and you're like, God, I have nothing. I, I, like I, I'm just so overwhelmed, I don't even know what to say. Uh, my words just seem so empty. They, they don't match the magnitude of your glory. I, all I can do is just be silent right now. And that's what Paul is describing here. When you truly understand the vastness of God, now we obviously should pray with words and we shouldn't, you know, like th- th- we should have intelligible prayers, absolutely. But every once in a while, you know, we need to just see the greatness of God, how wonderful he is. And these, this only occurs in our quiet time with the Lord. And sadly, many of us struggle to get that quiet time. We're not overwhelmed by God's majesty and glory because we're overwhelmed by stuff. We're overwhelmed by the, the, the tyranny of the urgent, things that are in our lives right now. And we don't take that time to meditate on the Word of God and how great that He is. We don't take that time to be in prayer before the King of kings and Lord of lords. Allow yourself to be overwhelmed by His glory. Allow yourself to have time, schedule time with the Lord. You know, when you get married, uh, you, you have all these giddy emotions and giddy feelings and things are great. As we've got a couple over here that's going to be getting married soon. And, and it's super exciting and, and emotions are just, oh, they're everywhere. You know, like you're, you're just so excited there. You get, then we have another couple that just celebrated a 38-year anniversary. And at that time, you're comfortable, things are great, and you still have emotion. But the, but the way that you still love your wife and husband is this way. Sometimes it's not just those giddy, superficial feelings. It's you start to think about how great your wife is or how great your husband is. Different qualities about them that are godly, uh, you know, their faithfulness. You start to think about these things and those emotions start to come. That spirit, you know, you, you, deep in your spirit, you're like, oh, I mean, you know, I really appreciate my spouse. We have to deal with God. Sometimes we can become so familiar with the Word of God, so familiar with God Himself that we don't really worship Him in spirit. We just, you know, oh, we got the truth and we worship Him up here. But are we doing a heartfelt worship? Are we truly understanding who he is, how great that he is? So we need to meditate on who he is, think about his attributes and what he's done for us, and that spirit worship will come with it. So moving forward, we get to verse 39, and we're going to see a little change in the ambiance of the account so far. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet he would have known who and what sort of, sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Isn't it amazing that this Pharisee's view of her is probably God's view of him? <laughs> you know, uh, I, I just think it's like it's, it's exactly opposite. God's view of us, God looks at what's on the inside, man looks at what's on the outside. So here this clean and tidy Simon the Pharisee is here, 
who looks like the righteous guy. Looks like, I mean, I'm sure he's wealthy. He's dressed to the nines. He looks good. And here is this sinful woman who probably looks disheveled. She's cried all over the place. She has dirt in her hair. And so the people are like, man, she is dirty. She is, if he, if he was a prophet, he would not be letting her touch him. Like, this, this, she's, she's dirty in all kinds of ways. Like, you stay, you, she needs to stay away. But God sees her heart in love and worship of God. And he sees the guy that looks like things are all okay. And he sees him as a dead man, you know, as, as, as truly dirty and sinful. And I pray that we have, uh, I, I just, I love that this woman has no shame. She completely, she knows she's being judged. I mean, she knows the, the Pharisees are there, the religious leaders are there. I'm sure they've shunned her and kept her out of the temple, kept her away from them, unclean, stay away from me. And here she is unashamedly, unbridled, and radically responding to Christ. And may we have such a radical response to our Savior in worship. Even when others reject, reject us like Simon rejected the sinful woman, may we know that Jesus does not reject us, those who are his. He, he loves us and accepts our heartfelt worship. May we not be like the Pharisee who responds coldly to the move of God in others' lives. May we worship our Heavenly Father in spirit and in truth. Moving on to number, to number two here. Those who have been forgiven and accepted by Christ should show their love repentantly, repentantly. Verse 40 says this, and Jesus answering them, or a- answering, said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he, and he answered, say it, teacher. After this interchange, and knowing the thoughts of Simon the Pharisee, Jesus comes up with a challenge for him, and he's going to challenge him by this parable in verse 41 through 43. A certain moneylender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii, and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. So Jesus uses this opportunity to teach a new parable, and it's one that we can learn from much as well. Uh, Jesus mentioned a certain moneylender, and this moneylender has two, two people that owe him money, two debtors, and one has uh, 500 denarii, which is about a year and a half's wages at that time. So it's a pretty substantial debt. And the other had about a tenfold decrease of that, which is you know, 50, uh, which was about a little less than two months of wages. And he looks at both of them, and he cancels them both. And Jesus asks the pointed question, which of them will love him more? And Simon the Pharisee gives an interesting response. He, he judges correctly, but... He starts off his statement with what? I suppose. What do you mean you suppose? I suppose. Uh, there was no real supposing this. The one who was forgiven more debt would be more appreciative. Would, would be like, oh, wow, like I owed all this. This was it. Somebody gave you a, a dollar. You might say, oh, thanks. Let me give you $10. You're going to be like, oh, okay, this is even, maybe you'll shake their hand. Let me give you $100. You might give them a hug. You know, like there, there's, it's a little bit more of a response based on the debt that you were forgiven. Uh, the, the idea here is, not, is an expression more of gratitude than, than love per se, but there is definitely a love in it. And so Simon probably understood this sermon, was, this parable was directed at him, and so there's a little bit of a silent protest with this, I suppose. You, can, um, you could think that he probably had a little bit of an attitude whenever he said it a little bit too. And uh, Jesus still goes ahead and gives his sermon in the following verses, verses 44 through 47. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I love his just questions that are just obvious. Like, I just love, like he just loves to just talk about the obvious. I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, 
but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. Verse 46, you did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven loves little. I, I love Jesus' truth and grace here. He says, her sins, and what did he say? Which are many. He doesn't, and it's what we have to watch as believers when, we, when we're talking to people. We don't say, oh, you're fine. God's grace is great. No, you have sins, and there are many sins, and there are many sins that will send you to hell. These are, this is a big deal, but what, what, does he, what does he say? But she's loved much. She's repented of those sins. She's turned to me, and she loves me, and she has been forgiven much for that. But he who loves little, Simon the Pharisee, loves little. So Jesus compares the gratitude and love shown by this sinful woman to Simon, the Pharisee. And by, by historical accounts, if we're looking at the Jewish culture at the time, Simon wasn't overtly rude in not doing these things. Uh, these things, it, it, he, he did the least amount to get away with it. You know, he, went, he did, did just what he had to do. But if we look, a customary kiss was a sign of respect and friendship. It was commonly given to people that you really loved. A kiss on the cheek is, is how they usually did it. And Jesus receives no such kiss from Simon. Uh, having a, a guest's feet washed was customary. It wasn't required, but it was something that you did for people that you wanted to honor and that you loved. It was a common courtesy at that point. Uh, being anointed was obviously a special act of hospitality, uh, and it was reserved for an honored guest. But who to be more honored than the Son of God, who is now visiting your house? But Simon offered no such hospitality to Jesus because he did not see Jesus as an honored guest. It's obvious that he didn't see Jesus as an honored guest. He was trying to fill Jesus out to see what was going on, how they could maybe catch him. That's kind of where he's going, it seems like. Simon did not see his need for the forgiveness of his sins. He thought that he was sinless. He was okay. He was righteous. That sinner of a woman, she's the one that needs forgiveness. I don't. I'm, I'm the Pharisee, right? And so Simon did not give Christ the honor that was due to him. But in contrast, we see the sinful woman loves much because she understood the depth of her sin. She understood the radical forgiveness that Jesus had offered her. As we said a little while ago, it appears here that the woman had heard Jesus preach at some point before this interchange. She had already experienced salvation. Her sins were already forgiven, and Jesus confirms that in the next verses, starting in verse 48. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say to themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. As theologian John MacArthur asserts, your, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Made it clear that her lo love and the good deeds she had done to him were the result of the salvation, of her salvation, not its cause. Ephesians 2.10 tells us that we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, for God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So right after it's telling us that we're saved by grace through faith in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, we're told by Paul that those who are saved, good works will come through. And this is one of those good works of worship that comes through an individual who has been saved. This woman's worship was honoring of Christ, and her response to her salvation was put on display for all to see. Her worship of Christ did not earn her more favor with Christ, but it was out of a love for him that it, that it came. It was a sign that she truly was saved. For us who have been saved, uh, us who have responded with repentance, 
uh, we respond with humility because we know the depths and darkness of our sin. We know what we've been saved from. We know that, that Jesus took us out of the pit and set our feet upon the solid rock of Jesus Christ. Listen to Paul teach on this in Ephesians 2, 1 through 5, uh, right, right before verse uh, 10 that we talked about. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the, the air, namely Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead and our trespasses, other areas say, even while we were enemies of God, made us alive together with Christ, for by grace you have been saved. Like this sinful woman, we were dead in our trespasses, our sins. We followed the prince of the power of the air, namely Satan. We lived for the passions of the flesh. But look at verses 4 and 5 there. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And praise God for his saving work in our lives, friends. I pray that each person here has experienced that salvation, uh, that we can rejoice in that but God statement that we saw there, that we are the people of God, that, that we are verses 4 and 5, that that speaks about us. I pray that we're not still in the verses 1 through 3, where we follow the prince of the power of the air, namely Satan, and we follow the lusts of the flesh and the desires of the flesh and the ways of this world, which are destined for the wrath of God to come. Can't you see that God loves you. If you are not in Christ, he still loves you. And, and we don't understand how the wrath of God is ready for us, but yet his love is also there. How great is God that he loves those who hate him still, those who are against him. Uh, can't you see that even if that is you and you are in rebellion and you are a God hater, that he still reaches out, that his kindness is what draws you to repentance, not his wrath. We need to be scared of the wrath of God. Yes, hell is a real place. You will burn for all eternity and you will, it's unquenchable fire you got to be true about that. But that's not why we get saved. We get saved because he was so kind to take on the wrath we deserved on that cross, that he came, lived a sinless life, rose from the dead three days later, is now at the right hand of the Father because he loved us. And if that is you, I pray that you do repent of your sins, that you be saved. There is no more important decision, my friends, than following Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. It is so easy. You just got to admit that you're a sinner. Confess with your mouth that he is Lord Give everything to him. He will become the Lord of your life. There's no work that you need to do, no boxes you need to check. You don't have to be like the Pharisee and try to earn God's love or salvation. We can't, for by grace we're saved, not by works, so that no man can boast. So that when you go to heaven, God can look at you, and you can't come with anything. You can't say, well, look what I did for you, God. I did this, 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 this. No, God will be glorified because it's like, look at that wretch that I saved. Look at how bad they were, and look at how I picked them up and how I saved their soul. Uh, look at that rap sheet that I took, and look, look, at, look at how I, I, I'm glorifying them along with me because I took their sins so that God will be glorified, not us. We're not going to be able to come up and say, God, I did this, this, this. You know, I, should des I deserve everything. No, it'll be, no, you, you didn't deserve salvation, but I loved you, and I reached down, and I picked you up, and I saved your soul.
And all he asks for us is to humble ourselves before him, ask for forgiveness, repent of our sins, and turn to him. But that's hard. It's hard to give up the desires of the flesh. It's hard to give up the ways of this world. They all scream at you through ads, through social media, through everything out there to say, I want Christ more than that. It takes a work of God in your life, and you need to give it all to him. He's the only one that can do it through you. Finally, point three, those who have been forgiven and accepted by Christ should show their love responsively. Chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, right after this section, we continue to talking about uh, women here. It's really cool how we see uh, God using women in a time where, where they weren't uh, lifted up as much. Uh, so, verse 1, soon afterward, he went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, from, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who, poured, or who, who provided for them out of their means. Those who have been changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ should respond with love for him and should respond by love and support of the mission of Jesus Christ. Uh, Luke continues with this theme of women here uh, by mentioning the, these, these that we just mentioned here. He, he would go on to save many and heal many, including Mary Magdalene, who he threw seven demons out of, uh, Susanna and many others, uh, as well as Joanna. Uh, and if you look at the, these women are pivotal to the, to the ministry of Jesus. They're financially supporting the, the mission of Jesus Christ. And also, these women actually take the message of the gospel all the way up into the hierarchy of Herod's household. How amazing is that? Sadly, many modern women have a false understanding of the Bible's view of women. Now, they see verses such as 1 Timothy 2.12 that speaks against women preaching or teaching or exercising authority in the church as meaning that the Bible devalues women, that, that, that women are subpar. Uh, yet Jesus honored, loved, and respected women greatly. They played a key and pivotal part in evangelism and reaching a lost world. We must understand that just because there are differences in gender roles does not mean that one gender is above another. We are both made in the image of God, and we are made complementary to one another. Women always have and always will be a pivotal part to the family and to the church, and they should be re revered, respected, and protected. We must learn from these. We learn a few different lessons here from these women and how they responded to the gospel. Here's our lives should be on mission for Christ like theirs were. Let's look at First Chronicles 16, 24. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among the peoples. And in Acts 13, 47, for so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. We can learn three different things, especially from these women that we see in these first three verses about our response to the gospel. Number one, we should respond with personal evangelism. These women obviously did personal evangelism all the way to the household of Herod. They were willing to tell people about Jesus at the risk of their own lives. Uh, so, I mean, obviously they could have been singled out. Oh, you're part of that group. Well, we're going to kill you. But they, yet they continued to. Matthew 28, 16 through 18, we all need to be sharing the gospel, right? Be looking for open doors. We need to all learn from these women about what they were doing. Some of us may say, well, I'm here. I'm just this or I'm just that. God uses all of us to evangelize the world. Number two, to support the local church. 
Giving to the local church and serving the local church is paramount to spreading the gospel. This is pretty much what they were doing with Jesus. They were supporting the local ministry of Jesus Christ. And evangelism is solidified by discipleship. Uh, evangelism without discipleship leads to people who don't know the Bible. They don't know the Lord wholly. And di discipleship is done most effectively within the local church, which is why church attendance is a priority, why we need to give of our first fruits to the local church. It is the bride of Christ, as imperfect as it may be across the world. It is how he has chosen to reach our world. And number three, to support missions abroad. This money, this, this support, reach the entire world eventually, just about, uh, with the gospel. And we need to be reaching the gospel in our city, in our region, in our world. And we're blessed right now to have missionaries throughout our world. Uh, as of now, we have missionaries, the Dominican Republic, the continent of Africa, about to be the continent of Asia, and other places we can't even tell you. Uh, we, we have through the IMB, we support missionaries throughout our entire world as well as locally. So when you give to Crosspoint, you give to missions around the world, and throughout, throughout our community. So when we, when we band together and we give to these things, we're able to make a bigger difference. That's the point. That's why God has brought the church together so we can disciple and we can evangelize, make disciples and disciple others. And we're doing that across the world through this church. How amazing is God? As our state convention always says, we, we, we are better together. We can do more when we band together. It's great. I'm sure a lot of us here have things we support. You know, maybe it's Food for the Hungry or World Vision or Samaritan's Purse and things like that. Uh, Mission Avi Aviation Fellowship. There's a lot of things we can support that are good, but how much bigger is that when we band together and support with, a, with more funds and we're able to make a bigger difference? May we be the church that responds to the salvation given to us by being his hands and feet to a lost world. Let's come to a close. We, we started off today talking about a, a pastor who was rejected by the religious leaders of his day. Rejected, right? Remember that? Rejected. As we discussed here, we've seen a sinful woman who was rejected by the religious leaders of her day. She would have had that stamp. Rejected. You're not allowed here. In this world, there's many times that you're going to feel that way. You're going to be rejected. You're going to feel like that stamp's on your forehead. Rejected. Rejected by the world. Others may see you as not good enough or unworthy or, or tainted or you're just trash or refuse to be thrown away. You don't matter. They may look, may look down on you for one reason or another. In those times of need, I pray that you find comfort in Christ. For those of us who are born-again believers and followers in Christ, or those of us who come to that saving knowledge, if you've not done so thus far, we can say this. We may be rejected on earth, but through Christ we are accepted in heaven. And I want us to all say that together for a moment. Are you ready? We may be rejected on earth, but through Christ, we are accepted in heaven. My friends, may we always live that way. We are accepted in Christ. You may feel like your family rejects you. You may feel like your friends reject you, that you thought were your friends. You may feel like your boss rejects you. You may feel like your workplace. You may feel like your spouse rejects you. I don't know. There's all kinds of ways we can feel rejected by this world. You may remember, oh, okay, I didn't make that team. I was rejected. I didn't get that job. I was rejected. But just know, Jesus never rejects those who come to him. He always has his arms open wide for those who would humble, humble themselves before him and repent of their sins and turn to him. And my friends, there's only one judgment that counts. There's only one judge in this world that has the power to accept or reject you, and that is Jesus Christ. And he offers acceptance to all who would come to him.
Now you can reject him. You can say no. You can live in the flesh and do what you want to do. And that has a consequence called hell. That is a true thing. But you make that decision. Jesus doesn't reject those who come to him. All who come to him and faith and repentance will be saved. I pray that if you've not done that, if you've not come to him in faith and repentance and been saved, I would love to talk to you after this service about that. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, those of us who have responded with, with faith and repentance and turned to you, Lord, thank you that we know that we are accepted. In a world that makes us feel rejected, we don't fit in, we can't do this, we can't do that, we know that we have eternal acceptance from a judge that matters much more than any judge on this world. The, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, has accepted us with open arms and wrapped us up in love that is eternal. If there be anybody here that, is, that just really thinks about this and realizes that they've rejected the love of Christ, they, they haven't accepted that, and they've also been rejected by this world, they understand that this world is a dangerous place. This world is very conditional with their love. You can earn their love for a little bit if you do exactly what they want. You jump through the hoops that, that they said, and they'll accept you into their group. They'll say, oh, well done, this is great. But as soon as you buck that at all, or you fall out of line, rejected. You're not a part of this. I'm sure we've all been parts of those types of groups. We've all experienced that. You work and, and you're, you're given all of these wonderful accolades and all of a sudden you, you question an unethical practice and rejected, you're, you're fired, you're out. Uh, or at school we have friends and it's like, oh, these people, they have my back, they're going to do whatever they can for me. And, and as soon as you're not useful anymore, you refuse to pay something for them or you refuse to take them somewhere. Rejected, I don't really like you anyway. But we have a Heavenly Father who loves us unconditionally. Your love for us is not based on our works. It's not based on our inherent worth or goodness. It's not based on our talents or our treasures. Nothing like that impresses you at all. Your love for us is based on yourself, that you love us, not because we're lovable, but because you, God is love that your kindness leads us to repentance. And even though we can be unlovable at times, your love pushes through that. And God, I pray that if anyone here feels that draw, feels the Holy Spirit drawing them to salvation, God, I pray that they repent of their sins and turn to you as their Lord and Savior. If there's anyone here who is, who is sensing that upon their life, I just pray that they raise their hand right now and they just say, you know, I, I don't want to really be in front of a lot of people. I get that people get embarrassed. Everybody, keep your, keep your eyes closed, heads bowed. I just pray that you raise, raise your hand and you say, you know, I, I want that. I want to be accepted by Christ. I accept the free gift of salvation. I want to be saved. With, every, with all, all heads bowed, eyes closed, if that's you and you're like, I haven't done that, but I want with all of my heart to give my life to Christ and I want to live for his glory, just put your hand up. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for the free gift of salvation. Lord, if there's anyone here that wants to talk more about that, about what it means to give their life to you, to allow you to take everything from them and to live for your glory, I would love to talk with them about that. But for us who are in Christ, 
May we stand firm on the solid rock of Jesus Christ, knowing that we are accepted and not rejected. We love you, Lord. Thank you for the cross. Amen.